Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Well, I'm so excited this evening because I have a phenomenal guest who I got to see at a conference, and he blew me away with his work on social-emotional learning. And I have Dr. Adam Sines with me, and he is the executive director of the Oakwood Collaborative. And he talks about all things on emotional intelligence, self-care, and the dynamics of relationship-based learning. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast tonight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited to be with you. Appreciate the invite. Yeah. So I was looking at your bio and I was blown away with the amount of schooling and the places <laughs> that you've been. It is phenomenal. I would love to hear just about your journey and how you got to be, you know, in the executive director position where you are right now. Yeah. Gosh, uh, journey is the right word. It's certainly been that. Um, I believe it or not, uh, when I was 19 years old, never thought I was college material. Uh, never thought I could make it to college. Neither of my parents went to college. I was on my own. Uh, I was depressed, struggling with anxiety. I had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. I was working as a dishwasher at a fast food restaurant, struggling with mental illness. You know, kind of long story short, I found a couple of letters that two of my teachers had written to me my senior year, the last day of school, in fact, my senior year at Katy High School. And these letters were just so kind and sweet and so affirming. And essentially, they said, listen, we, we expect great things of you. And it was sort of one of those things. It was just the, the perfect aligning of the stars. I finally was at a place where I think maybe I'd hit rock bottom. And I was hoping for hope. And those letters gave that to me. And, you know, so I started thinking, you know, maybe maybe these women could see something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Maybe. Then again, maybe I had them snowed. Who knows? And so <laughs> the, the test that I sort of put forth was, I'm going to try to get into college. Um, I have no idea how you do college. I have no money. I have no family. I have no resources. I'm not smart enough. You know, um, so I remember saying, well if, well, if I apply to college, I'll get rejected. And then and then I can go on and live my miserable life and just prove to these teachers that wrote those very kind words that they were wrong. Mm. So I got on a bus, went to UTSA, University of Texas at San Antonio. My very first experience on a college campus was a panic attack. As soon as I stepped off the bus and those, those doors shut and the brakes hissed and that bus pulled away, man, I, my thoughts started racing and my heart elevated and you're out of your league. You're not college material. You don't belong here. You don't have money. You'll never make it. And I just went up to the first college student I, could, I, I saw with the backpack and I said, are you a student here? And he said, yep. And I said, man, how do you get in? How do you even do this? You know, and so he was really kind and directed me to the right people. And I was accepted a, uh, to UTSA and just took one class and um, one class. And we just kept going back a little at a time. And then just before I turned 27 years old, I, I graduated with my undergraduate degree in English. And by then I, I sort of realized that, you know, those teachers uh, at Katy High School, they were right about you. You know, they could see something in you that you couldn't see in yourself. And finally just gave myself permission to accept that um, maybe I could live up to something. Maybe, maybe my life could be something meaningful. So I finished an undergrad and then I thought, man, I love school. I want to keep going. I got a master's there at UTSA in counseling. Really just to, the counseling degree was really just to help me unpack my past and deal with my trauma. Um, and then, you know, I finally got a job and I finally had benefits and a little bit of money and I could get treatment. I finally got therapy, finally got medication for my depression and anxiety and Things started to fall into place, and then I got really excited about learning, and I said, man, I want to keep going. So I applied to A&M and got a PhD in uh, school psychology there and did uh, clinical training at Harvard and then did a postdoc at Brown Medical School. Uh, that was wonderful. 
moved back to Texas and started working for Bryan Independent School District as a school psychologist, and then actually went back to school to get another doctorate degree and ministry degree at seminary and got a doctorate of ministry and pastoral counseling. So that's sort of how the educational thing played out over many, many, many years, started when I was 19 and ended when I was 30-something. Um, and then, you know, I worked for, for Brian ISD that the plan was just to work for the school district for a year, get licensed and start my own practice. But I started working for a school and just had no idea I would love it so much. I mean, I love the kids and, and I met some just amazing educators, people that were just, man, they could have been anything in life. I mean, literally. And, and they chose like, man, I'm, I'm going to work with kids. And I just had so much admiration and respect for that. I, I, did, I couldn't leave it, you know? Yeah. So one year turned into five years. And then, but meanwhile, I started, I did start a private practice and that started to grow. It was just me. And then um, after five years, I realized I had to do one thing or the other. And I I left the school district and started working full-time in in my clinical practice. That was the Oakwood Collaborative. And back, it started with just me. And then that was in 2007. And now we have, it's grown. We have over 30 uh, providers, uh, outpatient providers in our clinic. And we, we were, we're a training site for graduate schools and, got psychologists, we've got LPCs and um, yeah, it's just evolved over the years. Um, and uh, so I do that, you know, I have my clinical practice, but I still uh, am connected to schools through my writing and my consulting and the SEL work that we do. Well, I love that story so much. And mm-hmm. it just shows the power of, of teacher feedback and, yeah. and the belief in, in their students. And you just talked about the social emotional learning piece. And I would love mm-hmm. to, to dive into that topic because it's so relevant, not only yeah. now with the pandemic, but just in general, so many yeah, kids are it, hurting right now. It definitely is, you know, and, and the SEL thing for me, it really goes back to the work I do in my clinic. You know, we, we had five years ago, we, we as clinicians in our clinic, we had, we were just sort of looking at each other, like realizing that we see kids all the time, but there are so many kids that need our services that aren't going to get it because, you know, they don't have a parent, they don't have insurance. They don't have a parent that can afford to pick them up and take them to a session and then take them back to school and then go back to work. And, and we just felt frustrated with it. And meanwhile, there's this robust uh, research base that shows the, the uh, validity of SEL, social emotional learning. Like it really, really does help not just with emotions, but when kids are emotionally regulated, they can then focus on academics. So their academics increase. So that was great. And then the research also shows that the teachers who uh, engage adult SEL, they report greater efficacy as teachers. They report more satisfaction in their calling and they report being more sustainable. Like, man, I think I can do this long-term if I keep taking care of myself. So for us as clinicians, it seemed like that's the answer, you know, rather than trying to bring kids into our clinic, why can't we take just some basic clinical skills and teach teachers, empower teachers? And and not the goal is to turn a teacher into a mental health professional, but, you know, I always say that you don't have to be a thoracic surgeon to perform CPR on somebody. And sometimes CPR can save a person's life. And Mm -hmm. when an adult is just practicing basic SEL strategies as as self-regulation, self-awareness and empathy and, and connecting with kids, that goes so far in in the classroom uh, to help kids that are struggling emotionally. So that was really why we did it. You know, it started about five years, and this was pre-COVID. We we knew like five, six, seven, eight years ago that things didn't look good for our kids, and we knew that empowering teachers was one great systemic way to help them. Uh, and the, but then you throw in a pandemic, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, now more than ever, uh, do we need social emotional learning? So what are some ways that teachers can kind of build some really dynamic and effective relationships with their students? Well, I, you know, in uh, this, the second book I wrote is called uh, Relationships That Work. And in that book, is I describe what I call four relational readiness skills. And um, 
whatever the relationship is, whether it's a teacher with a student, a husband and wife, parent with child, boss with employees, guy, I also coach high school track and field, coach with athletes, whatever the relationship is, there are four, what I think of our basic uh, tenants that need to be present, that I need to bring to the table to maximize the likelihood that I'm doing everything I can do in my power to position that relationship to be effective. And so again, I call those the four relational readiness skills. So number one is reflecting on why I'm there. You know, um, And the bottom line is that if I don't want to be in my marriage, if I don't want to be a parent, if I don't want to be coaching, if I don't want to be in a classroom, if in my heart, I really don't want to be there, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to do the work that's necessary to build effective relationships. So number one, reflect on why you're there and make sure that you're coming from, from a reason that really satisfies your soul, not just a paycheck. So reflecting is one skill. The second one is directing the feel of my emotions. When I get overwhelmed, when I get afraid, when I get angry, frustrated, when I feel hopeless, discouraged, and mistrustful as an adult in the educational system, uh, I, I just need to direct the, the feel of that emotion adaptively and not say mean things or hurtful things or do anything that would sabotage a relationship. Um, so reflecting on why, directing my emotion. The next one is connecting. We, we connect naturally with, with kids that are like us, that that look like us, that act like us, that maybe go to our church, that live in our neighborhood, that believe what we believe. It's hardest to, to connect with the kids that are most different from us. And so when I say connecting, I'm really talking about going out of my way with the kids that bother me, that get under my skin, that rub me the wrong way. They're the ones that I really need to be pursuing to connect with. Con good connections happen organically, pretty spontaneously anyway. Those, it's the, the ones that don't come naturally that I really be, need to be mindful of connecting with. So that's the third one is connecting. And then the fourth one is protecting. And that's about setting boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to either toxic behavior or setting limits at school and saying, you know, I'm done until tomorrow and I'll see y'all <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> that, that's just setting boundaries is essential. So back to the original question, what can teachers do to build relationships? Reflect on why, uh, direct emotions effectively, connect with kids that are really, really different from you, um, and then protect yourself. Just set boundaries that'll keep you sustainable. Oh, I love those. I want to yeah. go back to a term that you used, which was self-regulation skills. I mm -hmm. think especially, you know, I work in a middle school, so I think a lot of our teachers assume that students just know how to do that naturally. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, you said earlier too, that there's a lot of students that have experienced trauma in their life and they're just trying to survive and they don't have those yeah. skills. And it really requires a co-regulation versus a self-regulation. So for Absolutely. our teachers that may not even know how to do that, what are some, some key things that they can do in the classroom to help with yeah. students who do not know how to self-regulate? Right. Well, to give you, to give teachers and even me a, a, a sense of context about, you know, well, shouldn't kids know how to regulate emotion? I have a PhD in psychology. I'm a, a hundred years old. I've been doing this for 50 years, it feels like. And I'll tell you what, man, when the, when the right stars align, I'm an idiot. I act like an idiot. I, I completely lose capacity to self-regulate, you know? So if that happens to me at my stage in life with my particular training and my experience, then you know, just, just figure where on the continuum kids might be, mm -hmm. uh, even kids that come from fairly stable homes, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so that is, I guess maybe the point is that um, I think we're, we're, we're not reality based when we assume that kids just sort of come hardwired with the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. So they don't. So then, well, so what did, to your question, what does the teacher do? Well, you know, I think of emotion, uh, it, it's essentially a fuel is what emo any emotion is, whether it's a favorable emotion or, or a, a challenging emotion, Anger, happiness, joy, fear, confusion, rage, whatever it is, it's fuel. That's essentially what it is. You know, the, the word emotion 
the Latin root is movere, which means to move. It, it implies physical energy. So we have to think of emotion as fuel. And um, whenever I'm in emotion, that means I'm experiencing fuel. You know, there are different ways to respond to that fuel. One, one way is to ignore it and just kind of act like it's not there. Um, another way is to inhibit it and say, look, I know that you're feeling angry, but zip it. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to de deal with you right now. So we sort of repress it. Um, another way to deal with emotion is to invalidate it and say, well, you, you shouldn't be angry. You should be happy that you have an amazing teacher like me that loves you, you know? <laughs> Uh, and neither, none of those approaches are really helpful when we talk about if our goal is to help children develop emotional literacy, which emotional literacy means I can identify a feeling and then I can express that a feeling in ways that are adaptive and life-giving. If that's the goal and we invalidate emotion or ignore it or inhibit, we're never going to get to a place of emotional literacy. You know, I mean, imagine if we were trying to teach reading and we invalidated letters or we ignored letters or we inhibited letters. We, we never get to, you know, any kind of decent literacy if that's our approach. Yeah. So instead, what we need to do is invite emotion and just let kids know that, hey, whatever you feel is okay. If you feel angry, it's okay. If you feel angry at me, that's okay. If you feel afraid, that's okay too. You know, whatever you feel, just bring it to the table. Now that's scary because Remember, emotion is fuel. And so it's like, what do you, so what are you saying, Adam? I'm supposed to invite all these third graders to bring all these fuels? You know, so if you think of happiness, well, there's electricity and anger, there's gasoline and sadness, there's kerosene and, you know, anxiety, there's strong winds, and I'm supposed to bring all that fuel to the table. Well, what if somebody lights a match and the whole thing goes kaboom? That's possible, yes, but I, I need to think like an engineer. You know, if I'm an engineer, um, I think gasoline, yeah, bring that because I'm going to put that in my truck and my truck is a machine that I can use to make my life better. Electricity, bring that because I'm going to use that fuel of electricity to hook up to my computer and I can use that machine called a computer to make my life better. So as an engineer, you're thinking of all these fuel sources. You're thinking, man, they can power all of these machines that will make my life better. Well, that's what emotional literacy is. It's recognizing emotion as different sources of fuel and saying anger, bring it to the table because we can hook that anger up to behaviors that will make your life better. Um, not hitting, not kicking, not screaming, not cussing. But if you take that anger and you start taking some deep breaths, your body will get in a really, really good place. If you take that anger and just choose to use that anger as a fuel source to, to do well on this test, maybe that could help. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the point is that every emotion we can link to a behavior and that behavior will make our lives better. You know, I think back to when I was in 19, 20, 21 and really struggling and dealing with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety really about my past, a lot of anger and a lot of rage. I connected that fuel to self-destructive behaviors. I drank a lot, I did drugs and, and just did not respect myself or treat myself very well at all. But through therapy, I began to realize that, oh gosh, you know, you can use that anger and channel it into your academics. You can use the anger and channel it into your physical well-being and channel it into your workout. So what was key for me was, was not ignoring the emotion in me and denying it or rationalizing it or try to repress it, but say, come on out, Let's connect you to some behaviors that will make your life more functional. So back to your question again, what can teachers do? It's that. It's invite the emotion and just remember that every emotion can be connected to a behavior that will make that child's life more productive and adaptive. Let's talk about another piece. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned it yet, I don't think, but you, you wrote a book, The EQ Intervention, Shaping mm -hmm. a Self-Aware Generation Through Social and Emotional Learning. And I just love this book so much. In fact, I'm holding it right now in my hands. Um, and one of the pieces in there was something that I really wanted to kind of hone in on is the, yeah. the piece of empathy. I was wondering yeah. if, if you feel like you can teach young people how to be empathetic. 
Yeah. You know, you can short answer. Absolutely. And, and that's what I love about EQ. So EQ is a shorthand for emotional quotient, yeah. which is said to be a, an equivalent of IQ intellectual quotient. What's, what's really different about IQ and EQ is that IQ, like our, our, our cognitive ability it's fairly stable over the course of our life. You know, we're either, you know, above average, average or below average. We, we can do some things to, to shift it a little bit, but we tend to be locked into that. But EQ is very, very different. You know, that that's actually a skill that we can grow. Mm. Empathy being central to EQ. So yeah. the good news is absolutely we, we can train ourselves to develop empathy, to, to see with the eyes of another, to hear with the ears of another, to feel with the heart of another, to think with the brain of another. That is definitely a skill. It's also a dimension of personality. And so some people are born with a greater natural capacity for that. But if I'm not born with a natural capacity for that, I can certainly develop it. And, and even in, in children who have uh, who, who are diagnosed on the autism spectrum, you know, one central characteristic of that disability is because of neurological hardwiring issues, so to speak, yeah. in the, the person's brain, that they just don't empathize very well. And they don't do emotion, they don't do conversation, they don't do social interaction can be really awkward and difficult for them. But a big piece of, of the intervention for, for students that are all on the autism spectrum is empathy training. It's just teaching a student, like this is how you look at somebody's face and tell what they feel. And these are the facial expressions that equal when my, my lips are turned upwards, that's a smile. And that means I'm happy. And then when my, my eyebrow is wrinkled, that means that I'm angry or it could mean that I'm confused. And, you know, when my fists are clenched, that means I'm angry. And so, yeah, absolutely. Empathy can be taught just through looking at visual cues and then through language, the use of language, like going up to a, a friend and saying, how do you feel today? I mean, that, that's a, a empathy loaded question. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, it's uh, the, the great news is that we absolutely can teach EQ skills. Yeah, that's encouraging for sure, because I know there's a lot of students that don't possess those skills to be empathetic, but it yeah. is so needed in social emotional learning and just the progression of, of a human being. Yeah. You talk about skills. I want to talk about another skill, which is social skills. I love the part in the book where you talked about social skills versus etiquette. And I really <laughs> never even thought about that, but it's so easy to rearrange those terms and think social skills are forms of etiquette and you just so eloquently showed the difference of those. So for those mm -hmm. who may not know the difference or have maybe mixed those terms up um, yeah. in the classroom in their teaching and their social emotional learning and social skills, what yeah. are the big differences? Well, you know, I think of etiquette as, you know, back in my day, there was uh, the, the culture uh, was you say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. When somebody walks into the room, you stand up at somebody's uh, eyes when you shake their hand. That's much more into etiquette. Chew with your mouth closed. I mean, that's just sort of training someone to be polite in society. And then those are great skills to have. Don't get sure. me wrong, but, but those aren't true social skills. True social skills are how can I connect with you? You know, it's, it's really much more about interpersonal relationships than it is about how I behave in public per se. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, when, when you talk, I need to ask questions and listen and be thinking about what you're saying and not thinking, I can't wait for you to shut up because this is what I want to say about that movie, uh, but learn how to ask questions and to listen and to reflect back and, and then thinking about the way that I communicate. And if I talk too loud and too pressured, you know, what's that going to do to help you? You know, that kind of stuff. All of that communication skills factor into social skills, which again, categorically really are different than just, you know, plain etiquette. 
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Toward the end of the book, you talk about a heart smart classroom, and <laughs> that was extremely powerful to read. For those who, of course, haven't read the book, what is a heart smart classroom? Well, I'll tell you where Heart Smarts came from. You know, one of my my friends, um, longtime friends, we go all the way back to, to second grade. Um, he is he sells security systems to schools, uh, electronic security systems, cameras, and things like that. And about he's been doing this for about twenty years. And I remember back in two thousand three. He, he, we fish every Labor Day weekend. That's sort of our ritual. And we were fishing and, you know, we we're just doing small talk and how's business been? And he said, gosh, you know, business, this was, you know, two or three years after Columbine. And he said, gosh, you know, we've been selling security systems like crazy, you know? And he said, How, how's business for you? And I said, oh, you know, it's, it's, there's always a need for mental health services. And then he said, so, hey, what's going on, man? You know, because he knew I was a psychologist and he, and, and he said, what's going on? Is it, is it me? Or are we just getting like, are we going downhill fast? You know? And I said, no, it's not you. I mean, part of it is that we're more aware of, of uh, mental illness. Part of it is that we're more talking about it more. And so, you know, that changes things as well. The, the need is definitely greater. And, I, and I, I just offhand, I said, the problem is that people don't have, we have street smarts. Like he and I grew up with street smarts, but we had no heart smarts. And he said, heart smarts, what's that? And I said, well, you know, it's just a way of saying emotion, emotional intelligence. And yeah. um, said, oh, that makes sense. And so really what we, we the idea we had was, Whenever he went to a district to sell like security cameras and plexiglass and all that stuff, he would say, hey, instead of just focusing on outside in security, why don't you focus on inside out security? Because if every child had heart smarts, if they could understand and regulate their emotions appropriately, they, they wouldn't be grabbing guns to express their anger. Um, and back then, uh, th there was like people, you know, people looked at us like, what are you doing? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Well, then what happened was, you know, Sandy Hook and Santa Fe and, you know, uh, Richland and all those other shootings. And so then into the 2010s, 2015s, then people started to understand, oh, we need heart smarts. We need emotional intelligence. So the curriculum that, that we developed, my clinical team and I, and then my colleagues at Texas A&M, it's called the Heart Smart Classroom, and and that's it. It's it's me knowing my inner world uh, as an adult first, because the the research shows that the most effective SEL programs really need to start with adults. I, I always say that I can't teach trigonometry unless I know trigonometry. I can't teach a student to, to write a five paragraph theme unless I know how to do it, and I can't teach social and emotional learning unless I'm living it. So really, first and foremost, we as the adults. We are the living intervention. We are the SEL intervention because kids are looking at us to make sense of the world. It's called social referencing. So whatever life I live in front of kids, I'm sort of their Wikipedia answering the question about whether the world is a safe place. So the Heart Smart Classroom is, um, it's a classroom that's been trained in our curriculum where the adults understand this is my personality style. These are the strengths associated with my personality. These are the weaknesses. And these are the biases that I might bring into the classroom. These are my, my sources of stress. And this is the plan I have to regulate my stress. And then once the adult is aware of their personality and regulating it and aware of their stress and regulating it, they become a secure base in the classroom for the students. And then with empathy, they can reach out and uh, empathize with students and partner through through relational skills and, and build bridges with students. Then they can teach the actual printed curricula, the you know where we teach empathy and where we teach social skills and where we teach emotional literacy. And so that's the Heart Smart Classroom. It's, it's where the adult and the kids are engaged in this ongoing process of 
ever becoming more deeply aware of themselves and how to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. So with mental health right now and, and teachers, obviously with the change of educational environments, you know, there's a lot more on teachers' plates, and you you yeah. just said it yourself. Like the the teachers need to have SEL in their own lives to make sure that they're right. regulating themselves, so they can model that to their students. So, what are some things that teachers can do right now in this very stressful time? Uh, the first and foremost thing is to be connected. Uh, that's that is you know, and, and I'm I'm my personality is pretty intensely introverted. I you know I, I do alone time very well. I'll put it that way. <laughs> But even for guys like me, I've, I know that I've got to be connected. And so, um, number one, be connected. And, you know, at, at some level, the connections are pretty straightforward. Like you need to be connected to your colleagues at some level. You need to be connected to your family at some level. Those are important connections. But I think of it more broadly speaking in um, my, my undergraduate degree is in English. And so I revert back to, you know, my English major days. Uh, when I talk about being connected, there's really four people that make a dream, what I call the dream team. And they're based on um, archetypes, character archetypes from stories. One of them is, a, is a, a sage. So we all need somebody in our life that that can coach us, that can mentor us. Part of what's so difficult about teaching through a pandemic is there literally is not a person on the planet that can say, well, back in the last pandemic that I went through, this is how we did it in education. That person doesn't exist. And so... We don't have a mentor for this, but uh, when it comes to my work and struggling in my work, what I want to do is find somebody that's that's retired and just sit down with them and say, um, hey, take me back to a year in your work where you were, you, you wanted to call it quits, where you were so overwhelmed, you just thought this isn't worth it. How did you get through that? What did you do? How long did it take? You know, what, what mindset shifts did you need to make to do that? That's what saging is all about. So number one, we need to be connected to a sage. Number two, we need to be connected to a hero. The hero is not the person that comes in to save the day, you know, super a la Superman. The hero is actually the person that demands greatness from us. The person that says, I see excellence in you. And my job is to call that excellence out of you. You're going to save your own day. So we need somebody that's going to, that's not going to let us slough off. That's not going to listen to our whining and belly aching and, you know, excuses and say, no, you were called to excellence in this life. Go out there and, and leave your mark. Uh, so number one is a sage. Number two is a hero. Uh, number three is sort of the antithesis to the hero, and that's the caregiver. The care the, the hero says, "Get off your rear end, get on your feet, and go do some work." The caregiver says, "Get off your feet, get on your rear end. Let me listen to your excuses. Let me listen to all your whining and crying and belly aching, and let me just love you and nurture you and fill you up." And so that's the third one is the caregiver, and the fourth one is the everyman, and that's just your sidekick. That's your co-pilot. You know, they're just along the ride, doing the journey with you. So one thing that teachers can do uh, to, to endure and, and, and work through the, the stress of this is, is to be connected to those four people uh, and their families. And, you know, people in their families might be serving those roles, which is yeah. great. Yeah, those are so key. I know that you're doing a lot of work with schools um, with your <laughs> educational consulting. Yeah. What are some things that you provide as far as services in the area of SEL? Well, we, we provide on-site training. Uh, used to provide on-site training. I did one on-site training last week, and it felt really weird, honestly. Uh, but but we'll get back to the on-site training when the time is right. We provide synchronous training, asynchronous training. Uh, in the area of SEL and uh, stress management, uh, like our thing is, uh, number one, as a teacher, 
how, how do I make myself sustainable? How do I practice self-care physically, occupationally, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So we, we provide that kind of training for educators. We, we provide trainings in the, the dynamics of effective relationship building. What do I need to know about myself and about students so that we can build the kinds of relationships that my teachers built with me so that when they wrote a letter, it literally changed my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we provide uh, our curricula, our HeartSmart Classroom curricula, which part of that, you know, the, the, it's a one-day training that, that we do. And the first half of the day is adult SEL. How do I recognize my personality and, and understand it? How do I recognize my stress and regulate it? And the second half is child-focused SEL. What do I need to know about trauma and the neuropsychology of trauma? What do I need to know about a roadmap to teach a child how to manage their emotion and hook that fuel up to the right behavior? Um, and then what do I need to know to teach children social skills and how, how to resolve conflict appropriately? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of an overview of what we're doing. Adam, I don't want to move on until I have you explain this piece because I think it's so important to the why of social emotional learning. But sure. what is the effect of trauma on a student's brain? Uh, it, it basically restricts it. So um, when we're developing um, and we experience trauma at some age, you know, three, five, eight, 10, 18, our development essentially gets locked at that stage because we essentially become in some ways psychologically paralyzed um, because of the trauma. And if we don't get treatment for it, so, so think of it this way, if, if you were in a, a really, really bad car accident and you couldn't move, you'd have to have physical therapy to train your body to move again. And sometimes if the trauma is so bad, your body doesn't, it, it, it will never be the same again, but hopefully with all the right therapies, your body eventually will work the way that it did. Well, that's sort of the model with in, in treating trauma um, in psychotherapy is when we've gone through a traumatic event, hopefully if we get the right intervention, if we get therapy, if, if we can talk through it and resolve it, then our psyche, our ability to manage our emotions, it continues to grow and progress. But so often we don't get the treatment. And so we get sort of locked into this fight or flight. It's like our, our sympathetic nervous system stays on, on this, the on switch. And we're always in fight or flight because we're not sure if we're safe. We're still living in the memory of that trauma. Not so much the, the actual memory, but we just fear like, what if it happens again? What if it happens again? And the term in psychobabble is hypervigilance. Um, it's a PTSD term. When, when uh, veterans come back from, from combat, they're always on guard. That's called hypervigilance. And it's just sure. hard to let your guard down. So basically, you you end up in um, locked into fight or flight, and you never let your your parasympathetic nervous system, which gets you into rest and digest, that never gets activated. So your body never restores. You don't heal, and just leads to all kinds of psychological illness, physical illness, and you know, learning the alphabet is so not part of your agenda if if you've been through trauma and you haven't found the treatment for it. Yeah, thank you for explaining that because I think that is the the why piece, right? Because students are going through trauma more than ever and the statistics show that and it's so important to realize that it is prevalent on your campus and there's a lot of behaviors that are occurring on the school that are attributed to trauma. And yep. so if we have that in our mindset, in our focus, then we can you know take care of those students the best we can with the social emotional learning piece. Yeah, and I would just emphasize, you know, that that when you know, for for a teacher, an educator, you've been trained as an educator. You weren't trained as a mental health professional, and you're you're saying, okay, great, Adam. So these kids were all traumatized by COVID. You're telling me that I've got to work them through that, or they're going to be stuck as a three year old, or you know, as a nine year old. No, but but here's the deal on that. Just saying to that student, it's okay to feel what you feel, 
And then this is what we can do with that feeling. Just that alone is so incredibly therapeutic. And so and that may be the only place in that child's life where they had permission and a template to work through it. And you don't have to be a licensed psychologist. You don't have to be Sigmund Freud to do that. I mean, any adult can do that and, and, and quite effectively, I might add. So mm-hmm. it's intimidating, but it's, it's really, really doable. Yeah, so important. I want to talk mm-hmm. about another project that you're a part of, which is the Power of a Teacher, the EQ mm-hmm. Intervention. So what is that project all about? Well, the Power of a Teacher is, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's essentially now turned into an online asynchronous learning process for, for educators. And the the root of that goes back to the book, the first book I wrote, which is The Power of a Teacher. And mm-hmm. in, in that book, I, I, I share my, my story um, and uh, just... To, to provide educators hope and encouragement. You know, I always say that my life is living proof that what educators are doing, it absolutely matters. It absolutely makes a difference. And, and even in a year like this, where you feel like, man, what's the point? You know, I feel powerless. I feel um, ineffective. I feel out of control. I feel burned out. Um, I would say that now more than ever, if, if, if it's, it's possible that what we do matters more than ever, even in a year when we feel less effective than ever. So that's what the power of a teacher is about. It's number one, be reminded that what you do matters. And then number two, this is just sort of a template to learn to take care of yourself physically and occupationally, emotionally, financially, spiritually. Uh, there's actually um, a wellness assessment that you can take either in the book or in the online course where you kind of plot out what your what your life wheel looks like with the, on those five spokes. And then I just give you as a psychologist some practical strategies that you can start implementing each day to grow wellness in each area, you know, whether it's financially, emotionally, physically, occupationally, or spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it. You know, I, I just, and, and my work in schools over, you know, for the first five years, I was very student focused in my work. And, and the model in school psychology is you you test a student and what do you need? Okay, let's do this. Then you test this student. What do you need? Okay, let's do this. Then you test this student. What do you need? Let's do this. And what I found in my, my clinic is that it didn't do me much good to spend an hour with a child if the child was going back home to a, a, a system where the parents were overwhelmed. And I began, yeah. uh, my work shifted to parent work because every stu- every child in the home benefited when the parents were healthy and functional. Mm-hmm. And I sort of took that same thinking to the schools. I, I think the best tier one intervention for every student is an adult who's practicing self-care and, and living the best life possible. So the power of a teacher really is about that. It's about, it's about taking care of the adult's needs, knowing that every student benefits when that happens. So Adam, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because the podcast is for leadership development. And I think everything that you've spoken tonight can be used by any leader. And I'm so fortunate to have you on this podcast to talk about mm-hmm. social emotional learning and, and yeah. mental health um, and, and trauma-informed care. But I, I do want to ask this question because I do love asking my guests this is just for those who are an aspiring leader because yeah. you're an executive director and I know you've led so many different people um, throughout the years. What are some things that they can do to enhance their leadership skills tomorrow or next week? You know, I would say, uh, I can admit this is my bias as a psychologist, is <laughs> know thyself. Know thyself. Know thyself. Know thyself. Man. And I don't just mean like, oh, my name's Adam. I'm six foot tall. You know, I have dark hair. <laughs> no, 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 no. And and I don't just mean like, this is my favorite movie and this is my favorite. I'm, I'm talking about know your deepest fears know your deepest insecurities, know your blind spots, you know, 
if, if as a leader, if I don't have people in my life that are reflecting that back to me, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, Dan Goldman is an American psychologist that really brought emotional intelligence to the forefront in the 90s when he wrote a book, that book called Emotional Intelligence. It was a landmark book. Mm-hmm. And he said pretty famously, you know, uh, and I forget what the exact quote is, it's something along the lines of, you know, no matter how smart you are, if you're not self-aware, if you're not self-regulated, if you don't have empathy and you don't have social skills, then you're not going to get very far. And, uh, you know, I, I, the more I thought about that, the more I just, I just disagree because the older I get, the more I see people, um, and I, I hate, I don't mean to sound cynical, but I see people getting to the top of political parties on both sides of the aisle. I see people leading corporations. I see people in high power positions, in religious positions that, that are absolutely clueless, that have no emotional intelligence. You can get really, really far in life without emotional intelligence. The question isn't how far you can get. The question is how much damage will you do along the way? Yeah. So to, to an aspiring leader, I would say start now by, by getting to know your shadow, to, to put it in Jungian terms. You know, there's that dark side of you that you don't want to admit exists, that the, the angry thoughts that you have and the judgmental thoughts that you have and the people that you don't like and the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of and that you're afraid of and that you, you hide and, and uh, all that we all do integrate that into your life bring the darkness to light and and um, when, when you get a second leader aspiring leader go to google and type in johari window j-o-h-a-r-i johari window and that is a model of like a foundational model of, of self-knowledge hmm. so i would say that to an aspiring leader it's about leading, um, and to do that most effectively, I've got to take the journey in my own soul to face my, my dragons and my, my demons and my fears and meet them with love and light um, so that I can emerge to be the most effective me for everybody that's depending on me. Adam, for our aspiring leaders, I always love to connect them with our amazing guests that are on this podcast, and you are such a wealth of information and resource. So how can they connect with you on social media? I'm on Twitter at, um, it's uh, at Adam Signs PhD, Twitter. Somewhere, theoretically, I have a Facebook account and an Instagram <laughs> account. I, I don't even know, like, don't go there because who knows what you'll find. But Twitter is my jam. So I'm, I'm on Twitter uh, at Adam Signs PhD. And then uh, your website, too. I know you've got so many resources on there. Mm-hmm. How can they find you on your website? www.applied eqgroup.com and everyone you need to connect with dr adam signs immediately you need to make sure that you're picking up his books you know like i said i have the eq intervention book it is absolutely phenomenal i learned so much from adam not only from your sessions but from your book and every time i hear you speak i feel like my knowledge is greater Mm -hmm. and it is such an honor to speak with you tonight thank you so much for being on the aspire podcast you're very welcome. And I just want to say one last thing to, to your listeners. Um, when, when the podcast goes live, email me. Whoever's listening, email adam at adamsigns.com, A-D-A-M at A-D-A-M-S-A-E-N-Z.com. And say, hey, Adam, um, I, I heard your, your podcast with Josh. And, and um, email me your mailing address. And I'd love to send the first five people copies of my book, The Power of a Teacher. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say thanks. Appreciate y'all. And I appreciate you for bringing me on. Oh, it is my pleasure. And like I said, everyone needs to make sure that you're connecting with Dr. Signs, get his books. And then for those lucky five winners, you need to make sure that you're emailing him immediately. So like I said, this has just been a joy to speak with you, Adam. Thank you again for being on the podcast. You bet. Take care.